0: Hi, my name is Isabella Johnston, and today's tip of the week is about assessments. And My my podcast is called The Intern Whisperer, and so I always share little tips for people that are in the HR space, OD space, organizational development, training and learning heads, all of those people. So what will 2030 look like? Well, we need to be thinking about assessments and how we're using them to demonstrate knowledge, skills, and also experience. And there's a number of different ways that we can do this. We can use peer assessments like buddy teaching. We can use practical testing of skills. And it needs to be interactive. And it has to be based on real life work. Um, VR rooms. We're going to be seeing more of that where people can go and get real world testing in there, like in the operating room, if you will, or in construction or in those areas of simulation, like in the military. Assessments can focus on solving real world work problems, and they should have two key questions that demonstrate that they have grasped the learning outcomes, of the course. So that's what you want to see happening for your learners. And we're going to go into welcoming our guest into the show. So I want to welcome to the Intern Whisper Clark Quinn, Dr. Clark Quinn, who is also the Executive Director with Quinnovation. So welcome to the show. Yay, a little round of applause. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very I, much for that. I am my own sound effects machine. So, you know, I do that. <laughs> i so happy to be here. And one of the things that we do is we always talk about five words that describe you. So what are your five words that describe you? Well, I
1: chose applied cognitive and design sciences.
0: Hmm. Tell me it's more. Because, Why? I've been,
1: <laughs> because I've been looking, I find what underpins so much of what we do is cognitive sciences and how we put in that into practice are the design sciences and so it's taking what we know about how we think work and learn and how we build solutions and applying that in useful ways to achieve outcomes so that's mm. where it comes from
0: so what our listeners are going to be gathering from this interview is that first off you're a site you're a scientist obviously psychology but you also have a lot of other skills from when you first were choosing your own career path so that's going to be super fun and then how you ended up being, boy, I remember when I met you, you said that you're also a, a publishing house. So this is a great journey that we're gonna be going on. And how I found you, just so our listeners know, is I went to a uh, ATD, I was volunteering with ATD, Association of Training and Learning. I was at the uh, Learning 2022 conference and that was being held here in Disney. And I saw his books and I went, oh, I have to have these books. So I reached out and said, yes, I definitely want to be able to talk about, you know, this whole repertoire of books that you have, your newest one, but also um, the science of learning and also gamified learning. So we're going to do a lot of fun stuff here for our guests. Um, So why don't you tell us how you got started um, from your in your career path? And you can start if you want from your educational background to where you are now and you take us on this journey. Mm -hmm.
1: Sure. Um, I actually went to college to do marine biology. Um, long story um, short, I that wasn't a viable path for my university, and I was sort of wandering around. And I got a, I was tutoring and got a job doing the computer support for the office that did tutoring. And I said, computer supporting learning, and we didn't have a major in that. This was a long time ago. Now I confess. But we did have a program where you could create your own major. And I designed my own major in computers and learning. And that's been my career ever since. It's taken strange twists and turns for sure. But that's been it. My first job out of college was designing and programming educational computer games. And that sort of became, has been a recurrent theme throughout my career. I realized we didn't know enough about how to do this. So I went back to get a PhD in what ended up being effectively applied cognitive science, the lab I was in was looking at interface design. My twist on it was learning experience design. I then did the academic group for a while, did a postdoc, got a university position teaching interface design, but my research passion, I realized, was still, you know, instructional technology, computers for learning, and again, included games and things. And then for complicated reasons, I jumped off to a couple uh, government-sponsored initiatives in online learning uh that were sponsored by the i was at the time i was in australia and then i was looking to come back to the u.s birth of our son triggered a homing instinct sort of and i joined up with the the guy who'd hired me out of college ended up being the guy who hired me back from australia and to join a startup and then you know 2001 that exploded like so much more and since then I've been become an independent consultant you know went from a euphemism front unemployed to a way of life and that's been pretty good mm-hmm. so along the way it's involved lots of things so you know I've managed to to be at play with most of the technologies so games and mobile and uh and all, but it's always been that focus how do we apply what we know about how our brains work to design of solutions to best match? with us and make us the most effective and we can be.
0: Mm, That's really, really interesting. Now, some of our listeners may may not know what cognitive learning is or cognitive science. Would you mind explaining that for them? Sure.
1: Well, cognitive science is an interdisciplinary study that was created when people in various different fields realized they were all talking about how the brain works. So artificial intelligence, neuroscience, cognitive psychology, sociology, linguistics, they were all concerned with aspects of the mind. And they were having, you know, discussions within their silos, not aware of what was happening ones. So it, around um the 1980, they created a, a society and a conference around the cognitive sciences in a journal as well. That was right when I was a grad student at, at At the institution that was creating this, um, my PhD advisor, Don Norman, um, sort of instigated a lot of this with some cohort colleagues. And so I was involved at the time, but it's all those different interdisciplinary places looking at how we, you know, from my point of view, how we think work and learn.
0: Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And processes that are in there, too, because the brain is like the best processor in the world more than maybe machines. I would think better than machines because like we could do more. Well, yes and no. We are more. There's a whole bunch of
1: excitement and I think we'll get into that conversation a bit later. A whole bunch of excitement about, you know, new technologies and how they're able to think now. And they're so narrow and they really have no understanding. They're just symbol manipulators.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
1: but this has been a problem because From roughly the 50s, when there was this revolution from the behavioral psychology to the cognitive psychology, there was this view that we were information processing machines, and they used computers as a metaphor. And the problem was, around the 1980s, they realized that a lot of the phenomena that they were trying to model with computers, the outputs weren't actually matching the way people actually did things. And so there's sort of a post-cognitive revolution where they recognize we're very much more situated and susceptible to context. And we're not formal logical reasoning beings. And you can look at the behavioral economics type of research or, you know, Daniel Kahneman's stuff. There's thinking fast and slow in his book. That. Yet so much of what we're doing in business is still predicated on the view that we are formal logical reasoning beings.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's
1: actually creating some major problems with mismatches between what we do in business and what we would be most effective for people. And so that's one of the things that really uh, gets me going is thinking about, wow, you know, not only you know should we understand how our brains work, but we should be applying it in ways that make us more effective
0: and happier. Yeah. There's so many people out there. There's a big emphasis since COVID, I think, uh, about mental wellness and just wellness in general, but also more hmm, what would I call it? Um, Awareness. I'm going to stick with that word. When it comes to understanding the brain and how we get really tired and we get really bored. And to me, I feel like the, hard thing that's happened since covid is that people were used to having relationships in the work environment and now that there's been this separation normally i'd save this for later but i think it's appropriate for right now is um with with remote work people to me i felt like i was a prisoner in the house when I could not get out because I'm a very social person and I need to be around people. But those that are introverted processors and communicators, they were happy. I find that so hard to understand many times.
1: Well, that's a fundamental uh, issue. And, you know, I'm much more an introvert. I've been working out of my house for the past couple of decades. You know, I'd go out and fly to places and if i didn't big deal so we're having a wonderful conversation through zoom right now Mm -hmm. and that's just fine for me um you know but i do understand being cooped up because i'm fortunate in that you know i've got a house with a yard and we can walk around the neighborhood and we're not jammed together we're not an apartment and i have that you know, freedom. So I'm greatly sympathetic to people who were cooped up and, and felt that, let alone, like you say, people who thrive on social interaction, my brother. <laughs> um, so okay. I get it. And yet what we're finding is being flexible in accommodating people's differences in these ways mm-hmm. is really important. And there's a bunch of things that we believe that are wrong about these differences. There's a whole bunch of instruments that try and characterize these things in ways that are not scrutable scientifically, and then there are some that are, Mm -hmm. but it's pretty clear that, you know, I hate to sort of make it a a continuum. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? It's really how well are you at being on your own and how well are you working with others? Um, Which is uh, one of the few things I take well from from Gardner's work on um, his different uh, views of different dimensions. But nonetheless, being flexible for pe- to support people and being a f- working well together, regardless of the situations they prefer, becomes important. One of the things we saw in business was putting everybody into these you know working at long tables with little workstations and open a plan office. That's the label. And yet when I went to a conference in Australia, they were to post that. And they were recognizing that sometimes you are happy to be in that situation. Sometimes you need time alone. Sometimes you need to be in a small group meeting. And they started creating flexible workspaces. So it had some open plan, some special little booths, some special little meeting rooms. And that flexibility really supports you and me in
0: Mm -hmm. terms of
1: our working plans instead of just one or the other.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. One of the things that I I kind of feel like, uh, now I'm in that ODHR space also, and I agree with you, there are some instruments out there for measuring, we'll call it personality type. Um, They will have some truth. Some of them are also kind of like a horoscope. So, you know, there's some truth in a horoscope to a certain level, but there's real science in others.
1: No? Um, No. No if you look at a horoscope, if, and you can do this, go read somebody else's horoscope. Mm-hmm. It also sounds relevant. Um, mm-hmm. That's the trick. And that's what, uh, you know, uh, Myers and Briggs, Isabel Myers and, and her, no.
0: Myers Briggs. Yeah. The mother. And yeah, the
1: but it was Isabel Briggs, I think, and her mother was Myers something anyways. I've got it. I haven't got the names mashed up, but that they made it up out of union psychology, and Jung made that up himself, his archetypes. They're not empirically verifiable.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then they had no training in psychometrics, and there was an independent analysis done of the psychometric validity. And it's not there. So, and that's true of so many of the proprietary instruments. There's one instrument that is scientifically valid. It's been done, it's no, you know, been known as the big five, and they've extended it to six with the hexaco. Um, but it's done by academics. It doesn't have a whole bunch of materials created around it, a whole business created around it. It's not. And yet it's the only one that's really psychometrically valid. Um, And I was saying, you know, horoscopes really aren't. Um, They they are written to give you general advice. And even if you go read other Myers-Briggs or any of these other instruments, you'll find parts of yourself in there as well. Mm -hmm. And that's the trick. But um, I'm sorry, there are, there's a whole rich literature about how these are bad that I don't really need to go into here, but I just recently recounted to somebody when I came back to the US and to build an adaptive learning platform, that was what I was leading the team to do. I got deeply into uh, psychometric independent differences in learning. I've looked at Jonathan Grabowski. I've looked at Carol's you know human factor analysis. I look deeply into this and I can tell you with some authoritative grounding without being a psychometrician, that there's a bunch of stuff you have to do to make it right. Mm -hmm. And pretty much all of them don't stand up to it. Pretty much all the commercial things just don't stand up to that scrutiny when they are subjected to it.
0: So tell me what your thoughts are about this, because this is how I see the, the one truth that comes out of Myers-Briggs. And I, learned all of that in my PhD courses also about Myers-Briggs, you know, it's not founded in real science. The, the one thing that I think is very true is there's extroverted and there's introverted, and it's more about how people process commune and they communicate. So one of the things that I know about myself is I'm an extroverted processor. So to get my thoughts out there, I have to talk out loud. And sometimes it's like I might say something four or five times, whereas introverted processors and communicators, they think deeply inside of their head, and then they're very slow to speak just because they've thought through everything in their head. So thoughts?
1: I mean, I'm an introvert, and I spout it off the top of my head all the time. Do you? <laughs> so, um, but if you look, so the the, the big five, were done without any theoretical basis. All they did was applied factor analysis. And they looked at all these dimensions and they created a bunch of things. And they came up with five dimensions that are psychometrically valid, that don't have an empirical basis. But so it the acronym OCEAN captures it. And openness is the O, conscientiousness is the C, extroversion is the E, uh, agreeableness is the A, and neuroticism is the N. Yeah, but I, I did a quick extroversion is one thing. of those dimensions. So people do differ on how extroverted and introverted they are. That's that's clear and empirical. The extensions is about processing of stuff. I haven't looked that deeply into it. But what does seem to be robust is that, you know, introverts can spend some time, be sociable, can talk up the top of their head, but then they have to take time to recharge, mm-hmm. whereas extroverts get energy from being out there and this is the Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. i I see this in my own family well like i said my brother is you know he gets energy from being with other people whereas i need to recover from being with other people Mm -hmm. even though i enjoy it and get value from it
0: that is very true and i know i spoke over you in that beginning but i pulled it up really quick while you were explaining that now is this is this particular i don't know if you know this or not so it's okay if you don't but the big five personality traits is what it's called. do they have one that's a a free version where people can see take this little test? interesting um yeah, they you know
1: this is all done by psychometric uh personality psychologists um as an academic endeavor so they don't have a company around it. everything they do is open source now people have taken it and created online quizzes and, they may have short circuit. It still has the flaws of many of these instruments in that it's self-report. Um, there are flaws with self-report. Yep. X, you know, tracking how you behave is better than you talking about how you behave. There's some wonderful research on artificial intelligence where they built these, they asked the experts, what do you do? And they built these systems that did what they said they did and they ran them and they failed miserably. And they said, why is this? They asked the experts, the experts said, well, I don't know, that's what I do. And then they looked at what the experts did and what the experts said they did and there was very little correlation between, right? Um, So, and that's when we had the AI winter in the 80s and we stopped doing expert systems and that's when connectionist models came in and they started doing things much closer to people based on behavioral data. But that behavioral data has a bunch of biases historically And therefore, they tend to be biased
0: as well. This is very interesting. I'm going to go and get that book now, too, so I can follow up on it. One of the things that you've done is, because you have all of this knowledge, is you have so many books that you've written. Why don't you start with whichever order you want to go, like your first book to where you are now, you know, go ahead or the most current book. But let's learn a little bit more about your expertise and why people should be getting these books.
1: Okay. Um thank you. Um the first book was on game design because you know that was my first job out of college as I mentioned designing educational computer games. And I was reflecting on it and then I got involved in it. I did a game based on my PhD research and then when I was an academic a colleague came to me and asked for game and and to de- A colleague came with a group, an agency that needed a game. And I ended up doing a project where we developed that with a a talented student. And I started reflecting on the principles. And then when I became an independent consultant, and I happened to be at a booth, and I was talking to this uh, publisher, and she goes, you know, Somehow it came out that what they really needed was a book on designing learning games. And I just happened to feel I had something to say about designing learning games. It had only been percolating for 10 years. That book just sort of exploded out of my fingers. So that was my first one. I got involved in mobile learning and I talked to my editor about the next book and they go, we really want mobile learning. I said, I want to write this other book. They said, we want mobile learning. So I wrote a mobile learning book for them and I've been involved in it and did some thinking. So I actually think it was the first good mobile learning book out there, immodestly. Then their, one of their other subsidiaries asked for a book on mobile learning for higher education. So I wrote that. <laughs> we, you know, They convinced me, oh, it's only just a rewrite of your other book, it should take you a month. I actually got a book written in a month. And I said, I don't want to publish wow. it. And then we agreed to do a realistic one. Um, then finally, I got to write the book I wanted to write as my second book, which was Revolutionized Learning and Development, because that was a book I really feel to, felt our industry needed. It was talking about how just taking orders for courses and creating you know, bullet point content dumps wasn't effective and wasn't what we could be doing. And I have a cheeky saying I use, L&D isn't doing near what it could and should, and what it is doing, it's doing badly. Other than that, it's fine. <laughs> and this book tried to talk about both of those, that you know, we really needed to get to better learning design. And we needed to go beyond designing learning, looking at performance support and actually facilitating informal learning. Uh, mm-hmm. I strongly believe that's an important role to go. Mm-hmm. Uh I finally was fed up with my publisher for complicated reasons. And um ATD asked me to write a book on learning myths. Now I've been, as you heard me, just debunk sort of some, you know, personality tests and learning styles and things. They wanted a book about that. So I wrote one and they liked it and that got published. And that's been, um, a lot of people seem to find it really helpful to, to wave in front of other people, go, no, that's a myth, see, here. Um, What's the name a of that you mentioned uh, Millennials, Goldfish, and Other Training Misconceptions. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I've actually got them all here. Um, it's got a really cute title. They did, I mean, cover. They did a really nice job of, of the graphics with it. So it's this cute one here with a oh, little yeah, digital cute. goldfish.
0: Oh, yeah, it's super cute.
1: Yeah, that's one of the myths, the attention span of the goldfish. And then they came back and they wanted a learning science book. And they'd originally talked to me about being the editor of one. Um, and compiling best, you know, chapters from best people. And I realized I do not want to herd cats. And they insisted they take care of it, but I just know. But then they came back and said, would you just give us a sort of a Reader's Digest condensed version of learning science? So that was my second to most recent book, Learning Science for Instructional Designers. Yeah. And before that one, I'd been intending to write a learning experience design book. And you have to understand that I view learning experience design as the elegant integration of learning science and engagement. Now in designing computer games, as I had for my first book and in a lot of my career, that's what you do. Mm -hmm. So now when they'd asked for the learning science book, and there are other good learning science books out there as well, I said, yes, but what about the engagement side? And I didn't find as many good books about that and i thought you know really that learning science books need a companion and that's why i wrote this make it meaningful taking instruction taking learning design from instructional transformational that's the book that to me complements learning science and talks about how do you add in make it emotionally have an emotional hook
0: right. and then
1: you know land people through the experience to actually be changed in meaningful ways Mm-hmm. and way back when pine and gilmore wrote a book called the experience economy and in it they claimed that you know we've gone from agricultural to product to service economy and they argued we were now in an experience economy you know we pay for experiences and you know like going to themed restaurants and things but what they claimed was the next economy was what I really found intriguing was they claimed that the next economy would be the experience uh, the transformation economy, where we pay for experiences that changes in ways we want or need to be changed. And I thought, you know, that's what we do in, in instructional design at least. When we're on our game, we create transformative experiences that change people. And if we did that in a way that was emotionally fulfilling, And it's not trivial fun. It's what Seymour Papert termed hard fun. But when you do that, you really have an experience. And that was the premise of my first book, actually in my academic research, I found an alignment between what makes effective education practice and what makes an engaging experience. And if you understand that alignment, you can reliably do this. Learning can and should be hard fun. And what I tried to do was write the companion book that talked about at the emotional side. And then how do you have a design process that incorporates that in a meaningful way?
0: Mm. That's very, very interesting. So what is your newest book?
1: That is it, the that Make It Meaningful. It's about okay. that. Yeah. It's the complement to the learning sciences book. It's the together they should you know provide the basis for doing proper learning experience design. Mm.
0: Really, really good. That's really good stuff. So what was your dissertation topic on when you were in school? Analogical
1: reasoning. So I was interested in learning to learn and of the fundamental processes. And there's a strong belief that oh, how we learn is by analogy. We take structures that are familiar and import them. And sometimes we have to bring in other structures and combine them in ways. In fact, Rand Spiro talked about how he had to use a series of mental models to get people to where they really had truly integrated it. But we learned by analogy. And therefore I thought maybe, you know, is analogical process, this fundamental process that goes on behind a lot of our cognition, could it be improved by training? So first I tested, I made a model of the different processes involved in analogy. And then I had people, um, and then I measured their performance on it. And then I took four of the six processes that I thought were actually amenable to training. And I tried some in training interventions and tested them again. And indeed found that I could get um, some couple of the process, one was already sealing, one was, wasn't was effective, but two of the process I could actually improve their performance on. So that's what it was about what is this, those? you know. Hmm?
0: What were those processes? oh
1: gosh you're asking me to go a long way back Uh, that's okay Um, i know it was a
0: while back but what's interesting to me is um is how i can see improvement by working across multi-generational co-workers and accelerating learning that takes place in that way and i focus on six cognitive skills also of research, time management, problem solving, critical thinking, communication, which has four variables in there, and then creativity. Now in the communication side, I feel like there's verbal skills, of course, right? Written skills, listening skills, Mm -hmm. but then there's observation, which is where I really think that people pick up more in the empathy. If they don't have that, then they're really having to listen to you know, how the voice is being used. And it's very hard to see that in texting. So by working across generations and cultures, for example, you know, pairing an intern and apprentice with, you know, yourself or myself, I learn from them as much as they, and that's really more of a peer and reverse mentoring um, that's taking place is where I can give them the deeper levels of well, this is what I've learned and this is what I know and this is what my experience has been where they may not have those years of experience, but it's the actual exchange of that information and one of my PhD professors had also said, people learn from storytelling so I'm not sure if that's the same as what you're talking about with the analogies. So I, I threw a lot at you there.
1: <laughs> yeah, you did that but that's fine. Um, actually,
0: storytelling. <laughs> can spread
1: into metaphor as well so and Mm -hmm. the distinction in my mind between metaphor and analogy isn't as clear as some people seem to be able to to mentally uh structure the process is we turns out we're bad at generating analogies but really good at using them stories actually are ways to communicate analogy and more so um they use the familiar narrative structure, which facilitates interpretation, and our brains are wired to understand story. Um, So I do believe that we can improve people's ability to think, and there's demonstrable evidence of this in a variety of ways, like just being more systematic in your experimentation. Um, Too often people will vary more than one variable at a time with things, so there's And self-explanation of of examples is a classic example of the work of Mickey Chi and then um, gonna senior uh, Kate Bialochit took her work and made an intervention based upon it to get people to be better at explaining examples that they were shown to themselves and that led to better outcomes. So there are a bunch of meaningful skills we can use uh, to improve our ability to think. And my colleague, Harold Jarkey, has this personal knowledge mastery model, which I really like, where he talks about how do you set up the feeds of input information? How do you make sense of it? You talked about how you have to say it several times to other people is mm-hmm. your your ways of processing. I diagram things. I want to make the get the entities and the relationships right. And then finally, um, the sharing. You put it out there in ways so other people can give you feedback and create a loop or even learn from up themselves. And mentoring as many ways as like that Um, generations isn't, turns out not to be a very useful way to frame it. Age difference does, but arbitrary boundaries, turns out they're different for different people. And that really it's a continuum and they could be really smart about technology, but my kids still come to me for help. So it's not so much the age, it's the individual, Mm. but nonetheless, having different knowledge and having a basis upon which to exchange and interact is really powerful and valuable. Um, you look at uh, Key Sawyer's Group Genius or Steven Johnson's Where Good Ideas Come From, document how research has shown that it's not the person going away and coming back with a genius insight. It's that creative friction that generates new insights over time. And so those conversations are such critical. And my late friend Jay Cross used to say stem cells uh, conversations are the stem cells of innovation.
0: Oh, that's deep. I like that. That would work for me. So <laughs> we are going to take just a brief little break here, and we're going to come back to the second half of the show. There's some stuff that we still haven't finished from the first half, but we will be back. The intern Whisperer is brought to you by cat five studios, who help you create games and videos for your training and marketing needs that are out of this world. Visit Cat5Studios for more information to learn how Cat5Studios can help your business. Thank you, Cat5Studios. We're back to the second half of the show. We want to say thank you to our sponsor, Cat5 Studios, so much. And we're back here again with Dr. Clark Quinn to be able to learn more about him. And he's been talking quite a bit about um, what it is that his background has been focused on, as well as his career path. Um, We did talk about some of your um, books earlier, and I'd like to make sure that we revisit your new one that's out. Make It Meaningful, Taking Learning Design from Instructional to Transformational. Um, Why did you write this book?
1: Like I said, I view learning experience design as the elegant integration of learning science with engagement. And most of instructional design is focused on that cognitive part, the learning science part. And we don't even do that well, by the way. We Mm -hmm. have a lot of myths and, and practices that are sort of contrary to what we really know. For instance, the, rel- the importance of practice. But the other side, engagement, we do a lot of things. And I didn't put engagement in the title for a specific reason. My colleague Charles Jennings said, you know, people are doing a lot of trivial stuff about engagement. Uh, you know, they're doing, you know, click to see more, that's more engaging, right? And everything is video, that'll be more engaging, and a bunch of sort of trivial stuff. And that's not really what we're talking about. But when you get deeply into it, when you find out why it's important, what and help learners understand the what's in it for me. We don't do that very well in our instruction. Mm. And even a colleague who gets this showed me a syllabus and I realized that point now, you don't say anywhere why this is important. You just say that it is important help them understand why. And he goes, you're right. Oh, thank you for giving me a whole bunch of new work to do. Um, but <laughs> that's that's what this book is, is to do, is to help get that other side, that emotional side. And we have evidence that it leads to better learning outcomes. And yet we don't focus on it. We do trivial stuff instead of deep stuff. And what I want to do is articulate what that deep stuff was, how you do it, what are some tips and tricks, and then how do you bake it systematically into your learning design so that it's it's intrinsically engaging and Mm. therefore more effective.
0: You know, that's, that's very true. So I'm going to use an example of something that I do. Um, I was playing regular games, you know, apps on my phone because it was uh, really good for stress relief. But I found that I was wanting to buy things to have more coins, to be competitive. I'm extremely competitive is what I know about myself. So I am also self-motivated. I don't have to compete against it. It helps if I'm competing against somebody else, but I also want to do my personal best so i decided i needed to get away from those entertainment type games and move into um what is uh duolingo and i made a goal to be conversational to be more conversational than i was in spanish by the end of the year and and i did that it says like i'm 19 20 though i'm 20 uh conversational and i really can understand more of what they're saying if they talk slowly still but i put it on fast so i play these little um, motivational games within myself to with the goal and the milestone of being able to understand what people say in the grocery store line like that's how i i play these games so to me duolingo is um, an educational game it has changed my behavior but it's also because i chose to change my behavior So there's a difference between choosing to change the behavior and then what you mentioned in the beginning of the show, it was, I believe you were saying it's more about repetition of how people learn doing something over and over and over again, which I think people have the, the, you know, what is the word I'm looking for, the um, intelligence span of the goldfish going back to your other book. So, because everything has to go so fast for them, but it's truly through the slowing down and the repetition is where real learning takes place is what I'm understanding.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. And so I say learning, natural learning is action and reflection. Mm-hmm. So when we're doing something, we act and we reflect on it, it's not just repetition. You have to reflect on, elaborate it, deepen it. Mm -hmm. That suggests that instruction, good instruction, should be designed action and guided reflection. So you get learners doing things and then you scaffold the reflection around it. Now, motivation plays a big role. If you're not motivated, it doesn't stick. And we don't do a good job of motivating our learners to help them understand why they should care. Now, I do worry a little bit about gamification. Actually, maybe a fair bit, um, because you're self-motivated. But think of the you know, relatively unmotivated learner that put into a gamified thing, they can compete for points, but they're not in the top 10%. Mm-hmm. Does that therefore increase their motivation or does it not, particularly if they're not a self-motivated person? That's to me is a is a big issue. And so I prefer tapping into that interest you talked about. You were self-motivated. You wanted to acquire language. My daughter has done a bunch of Duolingo. And yet I tried it and it didn't work for me. Uh, I was trying in a language I learned when I was young because my mom was German. Mm. And I tried to resurrect the German I'd learned. And it did reactivate that. But all the new words I learned, and I studied for months before I went to a conference in Germany. and, And none of those words stuck. (laughs) <laughs> um, it just it, I wasn't using them in context now this was several years ago so you know when we were still traveling right now we're traveling again but it just I was only learning the vocabulary I really wasn't learning them to use them in natural ways and your games if they're conversational and you're actually listening to snippets of conversation trying to understand it that's much more natural that's going to have a higher transfer but yes probably um, the right practice. Now, um, uh, Robert Bjork calls it uh, desirable difficulty, and Anders Ericsson talked about deliberate practice, but you have to be doing the right thing for you at the next level. And Duolingo is actually good at that. They stream it up, they have it all sequenced so that you work your way up and it gets mm-hmm. more and more complex. That's, But that's hard to do. And you need to make it the right level of challenge. You need to reactivate it over time. And you need to be given the right feedback. So often we see, you got it wrong. Mm -hmm. Why? What was wrong about my choice? Or you got it right. But Mm -hmm. no feedback. It's really important. And then we most of our mistakes aren't random. There is some randomness in our architecture, so we'd randomly do things a little differently. It was better we'd get rewarded and gradually over time we'd learn new things. But most of our mistakes are patterned. They're made from bringing in the wrong models that guide us to do things. You should have specific feedback. You should, first of all, make the alternatives of the right answer, those ways that people do go wrong. And then you should address those specific reasons why they're wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I, I was having this conversation with somebody else recently. I'm on... I'm co-director, in addition to Quinnovation. I'm co-director of the Learning Development Accelerator, which is a small society for evidence-based learning and development. And I'm chief learning strategist for Upside Learning, uh, at, uh, custom content development house. And I was talking with them about unpacking learning and it just gets, you know, at the surface level, this is, ah, oh, but it turns out there's nuances when you get here and oh, there's nuances when you get here. But having practice and the right feedback is arguably the most important thing we can do to improve the learning we're creating for others.
0: So that goes back to my my theory of communication and having four variables in there. When I work with people, um, one of the things, everybody to me, I'm going to take a couple steps back so you know a little more about me. I teach Sunday school, three-year-olds, and I'm used to the whys, why, 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 why. And when I started teaching adult learners, I felt that my adult learners were the same as a three-year-old on the inside. I need to always make sure, just like what you said earlier, is explain why. Tell them why. And that means everything. So regardless of their age, regardless of how smart or maybe limited they may be, I always find that it's best to say, so let's talk about why. I'm saying to do this, and where are the benefits and the challenges in this? When I slow down and I teach that way to everybody in my company, the results go off the charts. Always. I get the outcomes that I'm looking for, which is basically make shit happen. I'm not supposed to say that, but like make it <laughs> happen.
1: Well, absolutely. And I ran a workshop and I designed this exercise and afterwards people were going I saw in the why did he do this exercise the next time I ran that workshop I simply explained why I'd chosen this activity no complaints yeah. and it's so important and I I get upset because there was this Malcolm Knowles wrote a book on andragogy and he was saying how adults learn differently than kids Mm-hmm. And said, and what he was saying is, you know, uh, adults want meaningful work, and they want it stripped down to, to just what gets them, and and, it, and they need freedom to explore and stuff. I was going, yeah, that's right for kids too. What what's he claiming is pedagogy? Oh, it's this didactic stuff we do in schools, and that's wrong, as you say, for three year olds, five year olds, eight year olds, eighty year olds, telling them why, giving them meaningful reasons why this is important to them breaks down huge barriers for learning. And or so you, good on you for doing that, by the way.
0: Thank you. Mm-hmm. But even, even if it's not important to them, I explain to them why it's important to me because I'm wanting to tap into their empathy and that they'll they'll go, oh, okay, I, I like you. I want to help you. So mm-hmm. then they do it because they want to help me. I mean, that's part of the motivation in there for a certain level.
1: Well, yeah. Although, you yeah, know, if you look at, uh, DC and Ryan self determination theory, which is to me a really good theory on motivation. They talk about three elements autonomy, mastery, and relatedness. And I want to be have the autonomy to pursue the goals I believe are important. I want support to be able to master them and succeed. And I want to be with people who I care about who also care about the same thing. So you're tapping into relatedness, but they, uh, made a sort of dimension of levels of motivation and sort of, you know, guilt or I should was, you know, was better than I'm apathetic, mm-hmm. <laughs> but not as good as, you know, I want to do this because it helps me or, you know, the best is intrinsic curiosity. I'm really curious about this, but that you can't really engineer because different people care about different things. But I argue, and that's one of the things in the, the Make It Meaningful book is that we can tap into why they should care. And I will bet there is a reason they should care about what you're teaching, not just to be nice to you, but you wouldn't be presenting it to them unless there was
0: a reason it was a value to them.
1: That's true. And how That's do you make true. that manifest to them? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I have to usually what I do is I, I tie why this is important and how it relates to them for either their career goals or learning how to just, you know, know more about themselves and everything else around all of those concepts there. Um that's usually my why is okay, this is important because of all of these different reasons. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But you know, that you should care. You are gonna grow up. You're gonna need to succeed.
0: These are some of the skills that will help you succeed. That's some of the understanding about... that will make your life easier i'm still talking about adult learners i'm talking about adults not even kids i used to teach middle and high school but adults are it's the same thing whether they're older than me or younger than me it's still the same it's like let me tell you why this matters
1: (laughs) our cognitive architecture is the same it's you know change the only our working memory capacity increases And the experience we can draw upon increases, but how we learn is still strengthening the connections between neural patterns. Mm -hmm.
0: And it's relational. So what we, I think, which is why you need practice because
1: yes, but you need why you need practice is to activate those patterns and strengthen their link and those patterns involved
0: with uh, understanding a situation and making the right decision. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I'm going to go into something that we haven't even touched on chat GPT, it's you know the latest thing out there now one of the ethical dilemmas that came up and i find this super interesting is in the office we were still talking about it and for our listeners that may not know what it is it's this new AI driven um, platform where you can give it a topic and it will write you five paragraph, five chapters, whatever it is that you're looking for. You can say, oh, I want it to be in Snoop Dogg's uh, language, the way that he talks, his, his streets talk, and it can write for you. What the dilemma was is All of us have grown up learning how to do research, whether it was the old card catalogs way back in the day or doing a Google search now, and you're still having to take all of the research and compile it to be able to make it sound like either one voice if you're working in a team or make it sound cohesive if you pull from different uh, sources, right? So the generations that will grow up with this aren't gonna know how to do research. So that's a problem. And they will just go, oh, well, let's just use this the way it is.
1: There's a reason they shouldn't do that. Yeah. So I recently, a while ago, I co-wrote an article on AI for learning with uh, Marcus Bernhardt, who's the uh, chief innovation officer, I think, for Obrism, an AI and education company. Recently, in fact, just this week, we came out with an update on that addressing specifically G- chat GPT. And the reason is, is because chat GPT is a conversation engine. It knows how to communicate and it can communicate in different and flexible ways, but it is not a knowledge engine. The knowledge it's based on is the internet. Mm-hmm. And the internet has a whole bunch of bad or not necessarily bad, may have some bad stuff too, but it has just some wrong stuff. Learning styles, for instance, still shows up
0: right? It has opinions.
1: So when you ask it to do things for you, to, to write stuff, it can write stuff that's wrong. Mm -hmm. And one of the, in our earlier article, one of the things about AI is it needs a good content base. It doesn't know anything. It only knows what you tell it. Mm -hmm. So if you give it a bad base, like the internet, it's not going to work well. It needs well-curated, well-written information originally upon which you can do these nice machinations like repurpose it in different ways and identify gaps and things, but it needs a good basis beforehand. that's still a thing that people have to do. Mm-hmm. So if people rely on it now people are doing interesting things with chat GPT. A number of colleagues have talked about how they're using it as a thinking partner. Mm -hmm. They will ask it a question they want to write about, and they don't take what it says, but they look at what it says, and it may come up with things that they have forgotten about or an angle they didn't think about. And they include that in their thinking, but then they do the writing. So they're drawing on the strength of that aggregate knowledge, but they're not trusting it completely. Mm -hmm. It's still taking that human filter, that knowledge that we have, because ChatGPT doesn't understand Mm -hmm. anything. It's Shuffling cards in a deck, it doesn't actually read the cards in the deck and know how they relate to one another. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, yes, people will use it, but it still takes people to understand what knowledge is and how what a well structured knowledge base is to create the basis upon which that can run. And that's having a good knowledge model still takes it. And for the foreseeable future, by the way, this notion of artificial general intelligence, where the computer actually understands things, it can, right now, most of it's brittle, it can bridge those brittle things. We're a long way away from that. Mm-hmm. And that's an important perspective that gets sort of covered over by all the hype. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: It sounds like the real value of having peer revert, uh, uh, peer, sorry, peer reviewed, content is going to be so important. And the role of academics will be very, very valuable. Maybe the pay grade will improve too, you know, because they're going to be the ones that are putting out, um, I'll call it more of maybe a a journalistic, it's science based, it's been checked and double checked so that uh, it's factual.
1: And it may be better than if you give it good academic journal information, it may be better at communicating that in non-academic ways than an academic is, but it's not going to truly understand it. And yes, um, that's what we argue in the paper that, and I believe So there are things our brains are good at. We are pattern matchers and meaning makers.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: We are really bad at doing rote things again and again and again, remembering large amounts of information, arbitrary information. Computers are the exact opposite. They're really hard to do good pattern matching. And yet they can remember large and arbitrary amounts of information, do repetitive things again and again and again. Putting us together, complementing us, is a far more effective strategy than replacing us. Mm -hmm. And that leaves us free to do the stuff we're good at and enjoy the creative stuff and allows the AI to handle the boring stuff. It can't assemble all these ordinary resources and then give us to to fine tune them. They still can't create meaningful experiences. They can ask rote knowledge questions. And even then some of them are dumb. You have to call through the list they generate. But when you really need deep contextualized practice and important feedback, AI is nowhere near being able to do that. And again, for the foreseeable future, that's going to be reserved for people being creative and under, actually understanding the relationships between things.
0: Mm, I'm so glad that you brought so much light onto what is a really hot to- a hot topic for 2023. Um, we only have just like a little bit left, but what ethical dilemmas do you see in the future? I know we touched briefly on these things here with chat GPT, but- <laughs> I feel like there's going to be um, the dilemmas could be eliminating jobs that are for people with either, you know, low intelligence or low skill abilities, um, taking away jobs, like just because we can, does that mean that we should just because we can automate it and make it with a robot? Does that mean that we should? I've been watching way too much Black Mirror. And then I also watched something else on Netflix, the future of, and I went, you know, just because we can do stuff doesn't mean that we should do it. It, it to me, the ethical challenge is going to come
1: into values. What mm-hmm. do we care about? Do we care about profit? Or do we care about p- people's lives? Mm-hmm. Because that's the, that's the juxtaposition we're facing. We can replace this person, this low literacy person with a robot. Mm-hmm. Should we? It might save us some money. What does that do to that person? What does it do to them? Do we have a good safety net for them? Can we get also still have them feeling like they're of value to people? Mm -hmm. That's going to, we are now really facing that change. We back in the, when I was growing up, oh, we're going to use technology. We're going to have flying cars and we're going to use robots and they're going to make our life easier. We're only going to have to work one or two days a week. That was a choice we could have made. We didn't. Mm -hmm. We made a choice that we're going to work harder and create profit. And you look at the disparity from the 80s of, you know, productivity continued to grow up and wages went flat. Somebody was reaping the profits of that delta, the increasing delta. That wasn't the people doing the work. That's something we're going to have to consciously face. And my perspective is I want to honor human values. I want our technology to be used to support us in being the best we can be not to replace us and turn us into uh, unnecessary uh, waste product of the system. Mm-hmm. So I think that ethical dilemma is manifesting in a number of ways. And we're seeing it in pressure between you know uh, fights uh, for wages, uh, what was in the labor, uh, the railway thing. These people didn't even have paid sick time. They couldn't take time off if they were sick. Um, that's just in my, my mind. Crazy and disrespecting people, and yet you know, we can do fantastic things and support people in creating images that represent things that they can't actually create. I have so little drawing skills, and yet I can see in my head what I really want to represent. If I could get a thinking partner who didn't steal IP from other people and right. create those ideas, I would. But you know, we end up with ethical issues. What is Chat GPT drawing upon for its knowledge? And who owns that, and does it owe anything to them? And mm-hmm. the other generative things: there's generative images, and there's generative text, and I forget what the third generative thing is. But generative AI is the, you know, the buzz phrase de jour. But there, it's raising a whole bunch of issues, and to me, it fundamentally comes back to how do we value people versus how do we value, uh, you know, profit.
0: Yeah, that is very, very true. So what is the best mentoring advice that you would like to share with our listeners? Our listeners are anywhere from that age of honestly about 23 to 60 plus. So, and they're in all different industries. Oh, good. I'm still included. Yeah, you're definitely (laughs) Um, included.
1: um, Right. Well, our talk about the, the value of conversation and really... Um, if you go further into Stephen Johnson and Key Sawyer, they talk about the value of p- different com- exp- areas of expertise to complement what you know. So, the first piece of advice is to find, make sure you're getting mentors who are, you know, have your best, a good mentor, has your best interest at heart, is interested in developing you, but has complementary areas of interest to expand you in that area that you would like to be. So, be selective in your mentors. And then the second thing was give back. Mm. I've been so lucky to have such good mentors. I feel extremely obligated to share what I've learned um, and you know and continue to advance it as well um, through dialogues with people like you. Wonderful. thank you. Um, that but that's such a um, important component is I've been the benefit how you know, how do other people get a benefit of that? I have to give back too. So make it a virtuous cycle.
0: Oh, I love that. That's really, that's beautiful. That's a great way to end. How can people find you? And you know, if you would be so kind as to share your website, um, I know on LinkedIn, but definitely say the name so that people can uh, find you if you have a, a Twitter handle or whatever that you might use. Sure. Um, I'm at quinovation.com
1: is my site. From there, you'll find a link. I have a blog where I think out loud, um, learnlets.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn as Quinovator. Um, that's my sort of handle. I'm also on uh, Mastodon uh, as Quinovator as well. Um, it's just sort of Quinovation. I'm the Quinovator. Um, and so those are the major ways. Also go to the Learning Development Accelerator. LD Accelerator and um, UpsideLearning.com are two organizations that I'm also involved in. Um, all of that, uh the major ways to find me.
0: I am making a note of a couple of those things so we can add that into uh, our notes. Now, I want to just... In the email I, I sent, sent you. Yes, it is. I'll, I'll go back there. Thank you for the reminder, too. <laughs> Um, It has been delightful having you here. I look forward to reading your books and being able to share uh, more about them. Also on even in my own writings on my own blog page. Well, the company blog page for sure. And I'm going to take a lot of what you've said in here as a good content and, and be sure to use you as the backlink for, for driving traffic to you because like you need to be, I haven't finished my dissertation. So this is like, I'm going, okay, check this box. I want him to be on my panel. So yeah. <laughs> when I get reviewed, <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, Clark. It's just been delightful to have you here. Well, thank
1: you, Isabella. It's been a pleasure. And uh, uh, thanks to all your audience for listening. And I wish you all the best.
0: Thank you. Thank you to our video and editing sponsor, Cat5 Studios. We want to thank our production and editing editor, Josue Gonzalez, and our music by Sophie Lloyd. Visit Employers for Change at www.e4c.tech to learn how you can create real diversity and inclusion culture while scaling your people for the future. Thank you for supporting The Intern Whisper by subscribing to our show on Podbean and following us on our Employers for Change YouTube and Facebook channels. Visit Employers for Change at www.e4c.tech to learn how you can create real diversity and inclusion culture while scaling your people for the future. Thank you for supporting The Intern Whisper by subscribing to us on Podbean. Or you can find our video on our Employers for Change YouTube and Facebook channels. Or you can stream from your favorite podcast channel.